All right. Uh, this morning we're going to be studying chapters 20 and 21 in the Confession. Uh, chapters 20 and 21. Chapter 20 is the chapter on the Gospel and the extent of its grace. The Gospel and the extent of its grace. Um, so the Gospel. What is the Gospel? Somebody would look up 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 4. 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 4. Noah, would you do that for me? After you... First Corinthians fifteen one through four. Now I, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to the word I preached to you, in vain. For I deliver to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried. So the question I would pose to you, that was the gospel. So we have salvation, we have the birth, death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. This is the gospel. The question I have for you is, salvation in the Old Testament different than salvation in the New Testament? Salvation before the cross, salvation after the cross. How was Adam and Eve saved? Well, initially, we talked about, we didn't really talk about this this morning, but we were there. Initially, there was a covenant of works. And Adam and Eve broke that when they took of the tree. Because they did not obey. They broke that covenant. How about Abraham? How was he saved? How about Moses? How was he saved? How were the people saved at that time? By the law or by faith? Somebody would read Genesis 3.15. But he is ready. Genesis three fifteen. We'll go right down. So Gen- So this is what's called the Proto Evangelion. I can't really pronounce that word. Uh, the first gospel is what it's referred to. Um, what I want the point I want to make with all this is throughout Israel's history, throughout the history of mankind. They've been looking and longing for this seed that was promised in Genesis 3.15. This singular seed. And as we read the Old Testament, as we look at it as one big story, if we look at Scripture as one big story, they're looking, we're looking for this seed ever since this verse. We're looking for the seed to take care of this problem that's been created through sin. So if we look at the Bible as one big story, it's a big narrative. So we see Noah, and we've got to ask ourselves, the way the Lord is setting this up through the Scriptures, is He the one? Is He the seed? He's this man that's going to deliver the people. Could He be it? Well, no, He's not it. How about Abraham? Could He be the seed? There's this idea all the way through the Scriptures of looking at these types of Christ, looking at these people, looking forward to the seed, wondering if Abraham could be him, if Jacob could be him, if Moses could be him, if David could be him. We look at Second Chronicles. Um, Second Chronicles is um, the last book in the Hebrew Bible. The way they order those scriptures, Second Chronicles is the last book. In Second Chronicles, we see God has used Cyrus, the king of Persia, 
to begin returning the people to the land. This is about 539 BC. The people, the people are being starting to return. Um, Cyrus is God's instrument for the physical return. We can see in Second Chronicles, but the people are still in spiritual exile. They still don't. They're still looking for someone to deliver them. They're still looking for that seed to come. Second Chronicles 36, 22, and 23 says, Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be that the word sorry, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all of the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may the Lord his God be with him. Let him go up. So remember, they're longing for this seed. Israel's Messiah. They're looking for him. He must come. They know he must come from a certain tribe. They know he must come from a certain line. They know he's going to be in a, from a certain place. And then we look at Matthew 1 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And it just continues and it goes all the way through the genealogy of Christ, all the way back. Abraham. He is the one. He's the one that the God that the seed that the people have been looking for, this seed in Genesis 3.15. Somebody would look up Hebrews 10, 11 through 14, please. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sin. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sin, he sat down at the right hand of God waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. So he is the single perfect offering for all time for those who are his. This is going to be kind of lengthy here, but I want to read um, Hebrews chapter 11. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For, it, for by it the people of old received their condemnation. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. By faith we understand that the universe was created. By faith Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was... Uh, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. And he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet seen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark of the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was 
uh, to receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to a city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive. When she, even when she was past the age, she, since she conceived him, considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man and him as good as dead, were born the descendants as many as the stars of heaven, and as many as innumerable grains of the sand of the seashore. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar. And it just continues and continues and continues. By faith Abraham, by faith Isaac, by faith Jacob, by faith Joseph, by faith Moses. By faith the people crossed the Red Sea on dry land. By faith the, but the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. By faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. What 32 says, By what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, came mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by, by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release, so they may rise again later to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And all these, though commended through their faith did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us they should not be made perfect. He provided the seed that they were looking for. <clears throat> Sorry, we did not read paragraph 1. Let's read paragraph 1 and then paragraph 2, and we'll jump into 2. Sorry. And the confession, paragraph 1. Because the covenant of works was broken by sin, unable to confer life, God was pleased to proclaim the promise of Christ, the seed of the woman, as the means of calling the elect and producing in them faith and repentance. In this promise, the gospel and its substitute, substance was revealed and made effectual for the conversion and salvation of sinners. Okay. And then paragraph 2. This promise of Christ... In the Word of God alone. The works of creation and providence, when assisted only by the light of nature, do not reveal Christ or grace through Him, even in a general or obscure way. Much less are those without the revelation of Him, the promise, or gospel, able to or repentance by seeing these works of God. So we just talked about the gospel. We know what the gospel is. We know that the gospel is believed and accepted through faith in Christ. Um, But there's other aspects that we need to talk about on how and the way that this happens, Um, the way we receive it, the way we don't receive it. Um, 
there's two distinctions given in this chapter, this idea of general revelation and um, special revelation. Um, so general, general revelation, what is it? Romans one twenty. Somebody could read that. Rome. Okay, so what is general revelation? Creation. Creation, yes. All of creation reveals that there is a creator. This idea of we, we see the design, we know there must be a designer. We, we know that there must be something that has done this. We don't know what, we don't know who, we don't know why, but we know that there is a creator. So general revelation, we know what it is, so we ask what does it do? What does it do? It, well, it puts humanity in a position to acknowledge that this Creator exists or not. They're faced with this dilemma. They see the creation. They see the design. They have to decide, am I going to accept that there is a Creator or there is not? Another question it, it brings is, can someone be saved by general revelation? I think that's a question we must answer. Can someone be saved by their visual inspection of the world? They see it and they go, okay, there must be a God or something that made all of this. Is that good enough? Can general revelation save someone? Think about some man in a jungle somewhere separated from the Word of God acknowledges that there must be a creator. Can that do it? No, it cannot. General revelation does not reveal Christ or the gospel in any way. It doesn't give us this. In no way. So it cannot save. So special revelation, what is it? Well, there's four kind of groups of ways to think about special revelation, four ways it does happen. There's the direct acts of God. Creation. He's directly acting. Um, Sorry, lost my place. Dreams and visions. The Incarnation. And the Word. Those four categories, as it were, of special revelation. The one we're going to focus on today is the special revelation of God's Word. So we want to we want to look at the next three verses: Second Corinthians three fourteen through eighteen, Matthew thirteen ten through seventeen, and Acts four two. If somebody could read those up and re- and read them, those three just back to back. Thank you. 
Okay, and then Matthew 13. When the disciples came and said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered them, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For to the one who has, no one will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, You will indeed hear, but never understand, and you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart and turn, and I will heal them. But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people longed to see what you see, and did not see it, and to hear what you hear, and did not hear it. Then the Acts passage. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. So God's Word gives us the Gospel of Jesus Christ, and that is the only way to be saved. Alright, any questions on those first two paragraphs? Any discussion? It's pretty straightforward. Okay, paragraph 3. If somebody would please read paragraph 3 in the Confession, chapter 20. Okay, so we looked at the gospel. We looked at general and special revelation. Now we've got to ask ourselves, who is this gospel going to save? Who is this going to go to? Who is going to hear it? Who is going to believe it? And it tells us in the confession, those whom God chooses to have the gospel preached to through the gospel through the preaching of the Word. We also understand that those who will hear have to have had a special move of the Holy Spirit in their lives and been indwelled by the Spirit to receive the Word preached. We talked about this a few weeks ago in chapter 10. So God chooses by His will and for His good pleasure alone, it says. It's not by anything that He sees in us. It's not by any actions that we partake. It's not by any special accountability, I think it says, or um, stewardship of our abilities, our natural abilities that He's given us. It's by His will. It's not by our obedience. And the Gospel crosses all political socioeconomic, racial lines. There's no special 
people. He crosses all of those lines. And as the the confession says, it has varied in its degree of expansion and contraction over all times, all seasons, all generations. We read passages in the New Testament where the apostles are preaching and 5,000 people are becoming saved day by day. The next day, 3,000 people are saved day by day. Who won't be saved? Somebody would read Romans 1. No, it's long. Romans 1. 18 through refer back to 20 minutes ago. <laughs> I was listening to that and I was like, ah, lined up perfectly. So um, any questions on that section? Any clarification? Am I sounding clear? <laughs> Let me read the last paragraph in chapter 20, paragraph 4. The gospel is the only outward means of revealing Christ and saving grace, and it is monthly sufficient for that purpose. Yet to be born again, brought to life or redemption, those who are dead in trespasses also must have an effectual, irresistible work of the Spirit in every part of their souls to produce in them a new spiritual life. Without this, no other means will bring about their conversion to God. So most of this, we it talks about it in a different way, but we covered a lot of this um, in chapters 9 and chapters 10, free will and effectual calling. Um, this idea that there's 
um, an inward call and an outward call. The inward call must come first, and then we receive the outward call. The inward call is the work of the Holy Spirit. The outward call is the preaching of the Word, um, the Word itself. Um, 1 Corinthians 2.14, John 6.44, and 2 Corinthians 4.1-4 through 4 will spell this out. <clears throat> I didn't put some of those on there, did I? Yeah, no. Yeah, Second Corinthians. Sorry, first. I don't think I put those on there, did I? Two, one through four. John six forty four, and Second Corinthians four one through four. I didn't. Man. This was supposed to be two fourteen. First Corinthians two fourteen. I'm sorry. Okay. John six forty four, and then Second Corinthians four one through four. No one comes to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. So we must be drawn. This idea that God has to do has to give the inward call first, and then Second Corinthians four one through four. So the gospel needs to be a pure, undefiled preaching of the gospel. It's not a gospel, it's not some gospel, it's the gospel, that first gospel that Paul is referring to in that very first set of verses we wrote, we read, the gospel that he presented, the gospel that Jesus presented, the gospel pure and undefiled. And that the scripture says that Jesus will not be revealed unless the pure and undefiled gospel is preached to those who are perishing. All right. Any questions about 20? Any discussion? Anything I didn't say that somebody wants to say? Anything I said wrong that I shouldn't have said? Carrie. In the scriptures, like a specific. Yeah, is there anything just specifically? I know there's passages John the Baptist sleeping in the womb, so I know there's places where it talks about babies being already saved. Yes, Um, that is one passage a lot of people will go to and look. Another passage is looking at the the uh, passage where David is talking about seeing his son again. That I can, he cannot come to me, but I will go to him. Um, Yeah, there's no specific, exact thing, but we, through what we understand through free will and election, that God has elected people that would be saved before He made the world. So if that person is elect, they're elect. If they're not, they're not. 
Um, there's a lot of debate on this issue. Um, I've had some discussions with Woody about it. Um, there's some different conclusions to come to, but the conclusion I would come to, um, and we can talk about this later, or Woody or several other guys probably talk to you about, um, that God, through his love and mercy, chooses to save children in their infancy in death. Same would be said of somebody who cannot coherently experience the gospel, even if it was preached to them, so they couldn't understand it um, because they don't have the mental capacity. Um, it's kind of, am I covering that correctly, you guys? Uh, uh, something uh, added to that would be that uh, we see several times in the gospel God, or in Christ personal relationship with children, yeah. very warm hearted. He said, unless you come to the world, to the kingdom like a small child, you cannot be saved. So that's encouraging right there to us about our children. Yeah. Now what it amounts to then is our responsibility yeah. to bring the gospel to the children. Yeah. That's the key. I guess I'm speaking directly to infants before they're born or you know, before they're capable. I mean so they're also, of course, eligible to be elect. And there, there is, the guy that's written the, the best book on this is John MacArthur. He's written a little book called Safe in the Arms of God. And it's a very good book. And so historically, um, there hasn't been a complete agreement on this. But nonetheless, it does seem that most faithful Bible students um, understood that, and Calvin had a phrase called infants and idiots. And his idea behind that was that they were elect, actually. Um, and so, um, <coughs> I, I guess I'm persuaded, uh, perhaps, it, it does seem historically that the Orthodox understanding um, was that they were redeemed. Um, so, uh, it, it, is a, it is an interesting thing. That, um, but, uh, so I guess getting to the point... Infants and those who are incapable, as Preston said, it, it isn't that they have to get to a rational, reasonable understanding of the gospel. Do so they have to consciously, um, you know, come to Christ? Apparently not, because infants are, are capable of being redeemed. And it is kind of a mystery of the Lord. But I, I certainly don't think it's, it's reasonable to say that no infant or no one that can consciously affirm the gospel, it, it certainly wouldn't be, uh, I, I think, biblically accurate or a good thing to say that no, they don't come to faith, that they can't be refused. You know, does that make sense? Well, there's also one more verse I would like to bring up. Uh, I don't have time to, to go through it, but first, uh, Romans 5.14 Sounds like there's a situation in which uh, a child would die before he has committed the sin against God. Uh, not, not that he's not a sinner, but that he has not yet actively entered into a, shall we call, a positive sin. That, that way we're dealing with children who die in infancy who have yet not had the ability to comprehend them. Uh, to comprehend the gospel. And it goes 100%. Yeah. When do, we, when do we need to stop?
quarter till. Yeah. Okay. Okay. We'll try to blow through this next chapter if there's no other questions. Okay. Uh, chapter 21. If somebody would read paragraph 1, please. Yes. Yeah. So the confession says, uses the wording that we have freedom from these things and we have deliverance from these things. Something that I wanted to point out is while we have freedom from these things, these are the things that we deserve because of sin. Once you just think about that differently, these are the things... They were naturally a slave to because of sin. So it says we're delivered from them. We have freedom from them. So we are slaves to these things in sin. And we don't have freedom from these things. We deserve the guilt of sin, James 2.10. We deserve the condemning wrath of God in Romans 2, eight and 9. We deserve the severity and the curse of the law in Galatians 3.13. We are naturally a slave to sin because of this present evil age. We are in bondage to Satan, Acts 26.18. We experience the dominion of sin, Romans 8.3. We are naturally a slave to the suffering of afflictions, Romans 8.28. We are naturally a slave to the fear and the sting of death and the victory of the grave because of sin in 1 Corinthians 15.54-57. We are naturally a slave because of sin to everlasting damnation. But in Christ, we experience freedom from the guilt of sin, the condemning wrath of God, the severity of the curse and the law. We experience deliverance from these things. In that last sentence of that first paragraph, it says, in addition, it includes their free access to God and their obedience to Him, not from slavish fear, but from a childlike love and a willing mind. When I read that, in addition, it includes, it includes their free access to God. That's only a few words, but that that says a lot. That's very powerful. It made me think of Genesis one sixteen. In the scriptures, it says God made the two the two great lights, the one to govern the day and the one to govern the night. And it says, and He made the stars also. So we get a description in Genesis of all the intricate details of everything local in creation. Water, the earth, plants, trees, cows, everything. Sun, the moon. But everything else, if 
you understand anything about the universe, it is completely vast and endless. There are planets upon planets and billions and billions of galaxies and stars that he's created. We get a whole lot of information about our locality, but of everything else that he created that's beautiful, it says in the scriptures, and the stars also. Just a very short description, just like here. It includes their free access to God. I think we really need to consider how amazing that is. So I have a question. Why did God give us liberty to serve Him out of love and a willing mind and not out of slavish fear? Why did God give us liberty to serve Him out of love and a willing mind, as the confession says, but not out of, as it says, slavish fear? And there's three verses that give us that. It's these three here. If somebody could look these up and read them out loud for us, please. Think about this question. Why did God give us liberty to serve Him out of love and a willing mind and not out of slavish fear? So why? Because He loved us. Because He loves us. There's a couple more questions, and I'm going to skip over these. I'll touch on them just for a second. But I was going to ask you, what were some examples or ways in which we can exercise God's given liberty in God-honoring ways? And I was just going to refer you back to thinking about this list, because it's something you can take home with you in the confession. What are some ways that we can exercise God-given liberty, as it gives us here, in God-honoring ways? And so you look at this first one. Live free of the guilt of sin. Glory that God will not pour His wrath out on me. Live uncondemned of the curse of the law. Live knowing we are not slaves to this evil age. Live knowing that we're not in bondage to Satan. Live like, we're ha- like we have dominion over sin, and so on and so on. What are some ways that we don't exercise our liberty in God's given ways? Live with the guilt of sin. Live with the fear of wrath. Live under the law. Live as though this evil age has power over us. And so on and so on. So, any questions, comments, concerns? Okay. Somebody read paragraph 2, please. God alone is Lord of the conscience, and He has left it free from human doctrines and commandments that are in any way contrary to His word or not contained in it. So believing such doctrines or obeying such commands out of conscience is a betrayal of true liberty of conscience. Requiring implicit faith or absolute and blind obedience destroys liberty of conscience and reason as well. Okay, so real quickly, I'm going to try to cover... This is the time I, part I wanted to spend probably the most time on, but that's not going to happen. So we'll just have to have a good conversation during the meal. Um, so there's two kind of categories here that I wanted to focus on, that God gives us specific liberties, doctrines, and commands in His Word, and that humanity has throughout history, as the Confession says, created human liberties, human doctrines, human commandments that are not in or contrary to God's Word. So what would be some... Uh, 
godly liberties that He's given us. Living holy lives, living to the glory of God, living without fear, living free from the bondage to sin. What are some doctrines that the Holy Spirit has given us through the Word? The Trinity. Jesus is the Son of God. There's one true faith. There's one salvation. How about commandments? Ten commandments. Thinking about Deuteronomy 6, commanding us to teach these commandments to our children. How about humanity? It says, Humanity has throughout history created human liberties, doctrines, or commandments that are in contrary to God's Word or not in it. A true and godly liberty of conscience does not demand obedience to these, is what the confession says. So what are some examples? Human liberties. Easy life. Good job. Big house. Safety. Freedom. Capitalism. Happiness. Smooth roads. Quick commutes. The the list goes on. How about human doctrines? Love is all you need. Love more than you hate and you'll go to heaven. God is love and will not judge sin. To judge sin. This whole idea, idea that we've been talking about, two-kingdom theology. This is a human doctrine. This is not a godly doctrine. What about a human commandment? Eye for an eye. Don't get mad. Get even. Alright. I had some more I wanted to say there, but let's skip it. Let's just go to paragraph 3. Somebody read paragraph 3 and somebody read these last four. And then we'll be done. Those who use Christian liberty as an excuse to practice any sin or nurture a sinful desire pervert the main objective of the grace of the gospel to their own destruction. And they completely destroy the purpose of Christian liberty. This purpose is that we, having been delivered from the hands of all our enemies, may serve the Lord without fear in holiness righteousness before him all the days of our lives. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we provide this sin still living? We were called to freedom, brothers. I believe do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Okay, and that's just verse 26 and just verse 32. Hebrews 10, 26, and 32. Nobody?
Okay, well, that's the end. There's a lot more I wanted to say, but um, I can talk afterward, or um, we can talk later. Um, that's all. So let's let's call it. Yeah, I don't want them to feel. So anyway, let's pray.